And that kind of leads us, you know, right into the discussion of where your folks are living. Because like we were laughing about before the show, inside of every healthcare professional, there lives a frustrated real estate investor. And right. it's, it's very simple. It's such a great combination because they've trained for years and in some cases decades to make a lot of money for a relatively short amount of time at an incredible cost mm -hmm. of effort, personal life, and quality of life. Because well, it's school a demand loans and costs yes. to get educated. So what they can make that money do while they're practicing their career is huge. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. Welcome to the 100th episode of this podcast. Today's interview is with Dave Foster, the 1031 investor. He shares how this investment tool can defer capital gains taxes indefinitely by investing strategically, using a step-up in basis, and designing your exit strategy. He stresses that using this investment strategy for income property investments, you never have to worry about the capital gains tax rate, as you are always deferring your tax liability and creating more jobs as a result. So Dave, welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. Thanks so much, Trisha. It's great to be here with you today. So I'm, I'm excited to have you on the podcast to discuss 1031 exchanges. My audience includes physician owners, investors, and um, in healthcare real estate, a lot of the property owners would like to sell at the top of the market and then need to buy something else in a 1031 exchange to defer a significant tax bill. So you know, I'm going to ask you questions that I know, but I, I want the expert to, uh, you know, to answer. But uh, let's start with explaining what a 1031 exchange is for investment properties for those that may or may not know. Sure. So at, at its essence, in the simplest form, the 1031 exchange simply allows you to sell investment real estate. Then if you either have a significant amount of gain or you've had it for a long time and it's been significantly depreciated out on your tax return, then you can sell that. And by purchasing new investment real estate, you get to indefinitely, that's a key word, indefinitely, defer paying the tax that normally would be associated with that sale. Um, well, and then just to keep things interesting, um, can you explain what a reverse 1031 exchange is? Oh yeah, interesting. That's the deep end of the pool. So <laughs> the, the key thing to the 1031 exchange is that it's always, a sale of real estate followed by a purchase so that you're deferring the gain, right? Mm -hmm. A reverse exchange does not change that process. But what happens is that the qualified intermediary will actually take title to the new property before you've closed the sale of your old property. And then we can hold that property for up to 180 days while you're negotiating the sale 
of your old property. So you're in control of your new property, but you haven't closed on it yet and taken title. So it still qualifies for the 1031. And what's really powerful about that is a couple of things. Are a couple of things. First of all, it helps to mitigate some of the risk in this market, right? It's easy to sell. I can sell my property tomorrow, but I'm scared I'm going to find new properties. So instead, by doing the reverse exchange, they already know what their new property is, and it's already under their control. Then they can sell their old property, and as long as they sell it within the next 180 days, there's your 1031 exchange. Works perfectly. The other thing, particularly with larger assets, that this can be good for is that during that 180-day process, that's a half a year, you are not only in control of your new property, but you're also generating all the income off of it. While by the, at the same time, you still own your old property and you're generating all the income off of that. So although reverse exchanges will cost you several thousand dollars more than a regular 1031, they allow you to, in essence, double dip appreciation and income because you've already got everything locked up at today's prices but you can take advantage of the appreciation on the sale and the cash flow from both sides. So they can actually be kind of a financial windfall in the right situation, but they are pretty complex and a little yeah. bit pricey. Well, and as a plus or minus percentage cost of sale, what does it cost to do a 1031 exchange either way? Yeah, I would say that 98% of the QIs, qualified intermediaries, these are the people like us that do exchanges, make their uh, exchanges fee-based. And so for a garden variety 1031 of say a million dollars or less, you're probably looking at 900 to $1,200. For a reverse exchange, you're adding probably around seven to $10,000 to that. So they're not like onerous in terms of how expensive they are compared to the bang you can get. Right. And that you bring up a, a, another point there. So what what is the limit for a 1031 exchange? Like how much total dollar value can you use a turn 31 exchange for? Well, that's the beautiful thing. There's no restriction whatsoever on the limit. The restrictions on valuation are that if you want to defer all tax, you simply must purchase at least as much as you sell and use all the proceeds to do that. So you could be selling a $10 million property to a 1031 exchange. Or my favorite client of all time, uh, several years ago, was a lady who was selling an eleven thousand dollar lot in Southwest Florida. And I said, "What'd you pay for that?" She goes, well, "I paid a thousand bucks for it." Oh, and I said, "Well, that's <laughs> awesome! Congratulations!" Yeah. I said, "You know, by the time you pay to do the ten thirty one exchange." you're only going to save about $500. <laughs> and this was a response. And this is carried along in my heart now as a mantra for life forever. And she said, yeah, but that's my $500. And I want it. <laughs> so oh, that's beautiful. It really kind of comes down to a thing of convenience, doesn't it? Right. Um, there's some steps you have to go through and, and it's a process and there's some time constraints, but if you are not, if you're more concerned with the hassle than with the result, then you don't do the 1031. Right. If you're the kind of person like me that wants that $500, <laughs> then talk about it, do the 1031. 
And that kind of leads us, you know, right into the discussion of where your folks are living. Because like we were laughing about before the show, inside of every healthcare professional, there lives a frustrated real estate investor. And right. it's, it's very simple. It's such a great combination because they've trained for years and in some cases decades to make a lot of money for a relatively short amount of time at an incredible cost mm-hmm. of effort, personal life, and quality of life. Because well, it's a demand and cost yes. to get educated. So what they can make that money do while they're practicing their career is huge. And so we see many healthcare professionals that go into real estate investing as a sideline to gradually replace their medical income once they're done. It's a very classic strategy, and they've got a lot going for them in doing that. They have borrowability, lendability, so they're able to access capital. They're generating a lot of capital on their own. They're able to invest in real estate passively and yet still make it very lucrative for them. And then there's this great transition point where they're finally able to get out of the rat race and start to enjoy doing what they love to do, being financed by their real estate portfolio. It's a great combination. Yeah. Yeah. That finance, that goal for financial independence. Absolutely. So, um, you know, you explain on your website, um, your example of doing 1031 exchanges where, you know, you went through the process and, um, and then you eventually turn an investment property into your personal residence and then able to sell that tax-free with the um, proceeds less than 500,000 threshold for married couples. So flipping this on the, for commercial property investors, what is their exit strategy? So they continue to do this process over and over again, accumulating all of this wealth, but then at some point, you know, they have to start getting out of these, you know, for whatever reason, because they, they don't, you know, they want to use the money or, um, you know, they want to buy, uh, you know, maybe a second home or two. So how do you, because eventually the, they do have to pay the taxes. So walk us through what, how they might be able to exit out of that. Gosh, you've been eavesdropping my phone conversations, haven't you? <laughs> I, I seriously, I literally just hung up with that investor. They weren't a healthcare professional, but they were at, they were 55. And they said, I've got this huge portfolio. I'm done. I don't want to be a landlord anymore. I want to do something else. So the best way to approach that question, Trish, is let's come at it from 10,000 feet. Yeah. And we're going to talk about the four D's of 1031 investing. The first D is that of defer, because that's your goal. You buy a piece of property, it's generated significant appreciation, but it's time to sell it for whatever reason. So you do a 1031 exchange. Two things happen. First, you defer indefinitely paying all that tax. Secondly, all of that tax is used to buy more real estate. Now, that's a huge thing to remember. So you're now in new real estate. So you start by deferring. The second D is defer. Because anytime you sell that new property and again do a 1031 exchange, you will indefinitely defer the tax. And all of that tax goes to purchase your new real estate. 
And as long as you hold that property, you'll never incur a tax anyways. So that could be your last property. Or you might still keep selling and buying, doing the 1031 exchange and continuing to defer tax. And this is where the power of the 1031 and flexibility really come into play. Because when you sell, you can use those proceeds in the 1031 to transition into any type of investment real estate located anywhere in the United States. So if you've enjoyed riding the appreciation train in Austin, Texas for the last seven or eight years, but now you realize that when you buy properties, you can't rent them for an amount that makes money for you. Well, now might be the opportunity to sell that Austin property at its highly appreciated value and use the deferred tax and the proceeds to go buy properties in Kansas City, Missouri, where they're less expensive, but have much better cash flow. Or maybe it's time to transition into commercial investing. Or maybe it's time to move into a different area. Maybe it's time to go into short-term rentals because you kind of want a beach place you can have some time in. Whatever it is, the 1031 lets you do that and continue to defer paying tax on the profits. You know what the third D is? Defer. <laughs> exactly. Because the conversion process we were just talking about, you've got the opportunity to convert properties into personal residences at any time. And when you do that, that does not trigger a taxable event. So all the tax stays deferred, but what did you get? A new place to live. What are you going to do with your old house? Well, that falls under section 121 of the IRS code, which as you alluded to, lets you sell that property. And if you're married, take the first $500,000 in gain tax-free. Do you know how many times you can do that in your lifetime? As, as many times as you live in someplace two years or longer. Exactly. So in essence, your only limitation is every two years. You can do that. Now, particularly if you're a medical professional, you typically don't move that much. But NAR tells us that the average statistics are eight years. So if all you do is buy a property, live in it, move, sell it. You're going to have seven to nine times in your life where you can pull money off tax-free, $500,000 tax-free. So if you're converting properties, you get sort of the same bang for your buck. So you've deferred all the tax, then you move into it. Now, when you move into it, the rules are a little bit different. Back before 2000, 2008, before that, we were able to take the full amount on converted properties. So my family and I, we took several opportunities to convert properties to primary residence, then sell them, take all the money tax-free, and we put that into the buy the boat kitty. And that's how we ended up buying the sailboat to live on with tax-free real estate dollars. Now, since 2008, you have to have lived in the property for two years. You have to have owned it for five. And when you sell it, you're only going to get to prorate the amount of gain between when you lived in it and when you rented it. So let's, let's do an example. You do a temporary exchange, you rent the property out for a couple of years. Then you decide, man, 
it's time to retire. And I want to move to that property in Sarasota. So you sell your house, put $500,000 in your pocket, tax-free. You move into your formal rental property and you live in, it's on the beach, of course. And it's right next door to another rental property you own. That's also on the beach. Are you with me? Yeah. Sounds like my kind of scenario, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, like, move how, into the how first can one. I sign up for this? Exactly. <laughs> you live in it for three years. Then you sell it. Did you own it for five years? Yes. Did you live in it for at least two? Yes. So you get to prorate it. You take the 60% of the gain tax-free. You pay tax on 40%. Okay. You recapture the depreciation. Okay. But I still got a bunch tax-free. Where do I move, Tricia? <laughs> you have the answer. So Next door oh. to the next one right? And I just keep converting them throughout my retirement without ever paying a penny in tax, except for the extra from the time when I didn't uh, live in it. So those are the first three Ds. So really it's possible throughout your life to never have to pay that tax and to continue to use that for my own uses. And what we call that, it's really just a form of compound interest. Hmm. And compound interest is an amazingly powerful yeah. thing. So the fourth D, what do you think that is? Defer. <laughs> no, I got you on that one. It's die. Uh, so defer, 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 and then die. And this is extremely critical, particularly for our high net worth individuals. Because when you die, assets that you own will go to your heirs at what is called a step up in basis, which means the tax disappears for them. So what's the practical aspect of all this? Number one, you never pay tax throughout your life. Number two, your heirs get assets tax-free. That's legacy wealth building. I really have never found a statute that's more powerful in what it can do to the average individual throughout their life. So you can sell your house to um take 500,000 tax-free and then 1031, the rest of it into an investment property? Oh, you're talking about a reverse conversion. And that's a great point though, because this is awesome. <laughs> so you've got a property that you have a million dollars in gain on. It's your primary residence. So if you sold it, you'd get 500,000 tax-free and you'd have to pay 500 tax on 500,000, right? Mm -hmm. But what if you moved out and turned it into a rental? Before you sold it. Before you sell it. So it's a rental property for a year and then you sell it. Well, you can do a 1031 exchange because it's a rental property. But did you also live in it for two out of the five years prior to selling it? Mm -hmm. So you would get the 500,000 tax free still and you would do a 1031 on the rest and defer the tax on the rest and go buy new investment property. Absolutely. And you can, you can mix and match this throughout your entire life. It's like a game of monopoly. It's awesome. So, so for, for my audience, they can invest in commercial real estate over and over again. And then when they want to start moving towards their exit plan, they start buying rental properties that they eventually move into for two years and then move out to another rental property and then and sell the first one. As yeah, that's exactly right. Now, what most of our clients will, who are in that that boat will do is they'll do a, a, a kind of a composite of everything. 
if they've transitioned into commercial investing, they will typically stay there the rest of their life Mm -hmm. because commercial investing involves very little tenant work, much, much longer leases. And it's great. And they'll just die holding those assets and they'll go to their heirs tax-free. Got it. The rest of their portfolios, they'll turn into maybe a series of vacation rentals. The guy I was talking to a little bit ago, we talked about buying ski condos in a whole bunch of different ski areas because he loves to ski. And I said, well, you can put them in with central reservations. They generally take too much of your profit, but okay. But what's going to happen is you'll have income coming in from all six or seven of those. And you've also got a place to stay anytime you want to go ski, whether it's Copper Mountain or Squaw Valley or Breckenridge, it doesn't matter. And so that's how the, that's how he's going to handle his retirement. So you can use your rental properties if they're in a 1031 exchange. Absolutely. Your intent has to be to hold them for investment, but the IRS actually gives us a couple safe harbors that allows you some personal use. Great. So as everyone's anticipating capital gains tax rates increasing, are you seeing more and more investors considering this option? You know, we're seeing a huge uptick in 1031 exchanges. Absolutely. But it's not a factor of what capital gains is. The tax rate is. Because remember my little old lady? Yeah. There's a whole lot of investors just like that out there. (laughs) What it's really more a factor of is how much gain they have. Historically, when 1031s will drop off the face of the earth when there's a huge market correction, like 2008, just was what it was. Three years later, they're back and running because there's always the opportunity because it's not just gain. It's also that tax write-off of depreciation that you get. Mm -hmm. So typically it's more a function of how much gain and how much depreciation they have rather than what the rate is. Because if you look historically all the way back to like 1920, you'll see that aside from a couple of outliers where capital gains was 40% and a little bit of time where it was zero, it's really fluctuated between 15 and 25 the entire time. It really does not change as much as people think. Now, that doesn't make it any more desirable. It still sucks. Right, right. But, so, but it's not something where I stay up at night worrying what the gains rate's going to be. I just know that whatever it is, I can defer it by doing my 1031s. Do you think that the administration is going to be successful in changing the 1031 limits as they're trying to? No, that ship sailed. They're done. They, they knew that they were done when he was promising that during the during the election. It was a great campaign promise, right? Tax the rich. The rich people are doing 1031s. No, they're not. My little old lady with a $10,000 lot is doing right. the 1031s. So right. it's small. It's small investors. I mean, bigger investors do too, but yeah. know, a lot of it is the smaller investors. The average size of a 1031 exchange now is right at $400,000. That doesn't sound like the big, rich, fat cats, does it? All right. So what happened was that as several times in the past, the folks that understand economics got to talk to them. And they realized that if they put limits on 1031 and shut it down, a bunch of things would not happen. Two realtors would not get commissions. Two title companies would not get closings. Two attorneys would not get to review docs. Mm -hmm. 
Two house painters would not get to paint houses. An appraiser wouldn't get to appraise. And it goes on down the line. What every one of those people have in common is that they pay tax on their income at ordinary income rates, which are much higher. Right. So if they shut down a capital gains, they were going to shut down ordinary income from a lot of other people and actually lose money in the process. So thankfully, last year, the Senate unanimously voted to preserve 1031. That was the last vote out of the recommended budget. And the House of Representatives, is a ways and means? No, Finance Committee, came out with their version of the budget that did not have any change to 1031 or to the step up in basis. So once again, the politicians got smart. (laughs) We're happy. Well, this has been great. I'm going to, we're going to move into the Q and a section to get to know you a little bit. So what was your first job? (laughs) I love these questions. Thank you for giving me time. I had to think about them. (laughs) So I grew up on a farm. I can't remember when I didn't have a job, but you know what my first real job I remember was pushing a shopping cart loaded with data documents across the campus at Kansas State University, delivering them from the data processing center to the various departments in a grocery cart. I literally, I just realized this. I was literally Kansas State University's first official email. It should have been Dave.com. That's what I was doing. What do you think you would be doing if you weren't working in the 1031 industry? Oh, that's a fun one because I already know. When 2008 happened, we there was nothing going on. I took care of my private clients and I went to nursing school. Speaking of healthcare professionals. <laughs> yeah. And I got my RN because my wife was already an RN and we lived on a boat and we wanted to go down Caribbean and do medical missions work in the islands. Oh, great. And that's what I'd be doing. And that's what, there's my pitch, Doctors Without Borders, all kinds of ways to help people in yeah, need. Totally. Let your real estate take care of your bills and go have some fun taking care of people. I like that. What are, who are you reading or listening to right now for news information or inspiration? Great question. I really try to limit my intake of news content. Seriously, it's, it's well, that's another debate for another day, but... So I will allow myself to spend five minutes a day watching, looking at news headlines from whatever source. That has to go along with at least 30 minutes a day spent reading the Psalms and the Proverbs and the Bible, because that's where wisdom truly is. And 30 minutes a day talking to a live individual who I'm not related to, because there I learn about people. And so that's my communications for the days. Oh, that's great. What is one thing you do every day for healthy self-care? Greatest tip I ever got. It's so hokey. I make the bed every day. I've been married for 33 years. I make the bed every day. My wife says, that's such a blessing every day. (laughs) I make the bed every day because that's the first thing I can do. And it's the first positive thing I can do. And it's the first accomplishment that I can do. So it gets my day always started on a positive accomplishment. You know, I had another interviewer say the same thing. And, um, and, you know, I was raised, my, my dad was in the military. So, you know, not, not making your bed was not an option. And it's, 
it's interesting um, because the days that like if, if days get crazy and you don't make your bed, like you just, for me, I feel like I always have to go home and do something. But if I make the bed, it's like I, I'm just going forward. <laughs> yeah, there was actually, I think that that practice came from um, the military. I actually saw a, like a YouTube clip or something a long time ago where a general was speaking at a college graduation and related that exact same story. And I just went, yep, that's very true. Here's what it also lets me do, though. I always get to sleep in later than my wife because I'm going to make the bed. So bonus. Yeah, that is it is tough when when uh, you and your 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 partner get up at the at different times. So are leaders born or trained? I think that inside of us, man was created in the image of God. And inside of us, there are always with deference to the Wizard of Oz. There's always part scarecrow and part lion. Mm -hmm. It may be in differing percentages, Mm -hmm. but that's inside of all of us. But what truly makes a leader, the lion, the one who's willing to go someplace they've already been that wasn't so fun and take someone with them, or someone who's willing to go into the unknown ahead and take others with them, what makes that person is practice and experience in little small doses. The greatest way to get to a big goal is to start with small goals. And that's all nurture. And that's why, man, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking that's why it's so, if I could wax eloquent for a moment, that is what is so important about how we're raising our children these days. To not be so ignorant to let them do what they want because we think that'll turn them into leaders. No, that's just going to let them fail in massive scale. If you protect them too long, the failures are too big to recover from. But if we protect them for too long, we never let them bring out the inner lion. They never know what it's like to face adversity. So, I mean, folks, everybody out there, grab your children, grab a child, find a child, Okay, don't grab a child who's by themselves unless they've got parents' permission. But find children that you can invest in. Protect them and teach them how to stretch themselves. Yeah, I like that. Well, thank you, Dave. Thank you for your time. And um, I really enjoyed this interview. It was great. Enjoyed it. I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.